Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. If you had to name the most iconic structure on the San Francisco skyline, what would you pick? There's the obvious answer. The Golden Gate Bridge, of course, standing out vividly against the green hills of Marin. There's my personal favorite, Sutra Tower, in all its spindly glory. Or maybe you like the newcomer, Salesforce Tower. No judgment here, the art at the top is pretty cool. But I have a feeling that several of you out there might pick the topic of today's episode. What was, up until recently, the tallest building in San Francisco. I'm talking about the Transamerica Pyramid. Did you know all of the building's windows rotate nearly 360 degrees? CBS demonstrated in this news clip. And because of the building's unique shape, architects designed windows which could be washed from the inside. Yeah, but you missed a spot. Oh. One down, 3,677 to go. Also, the top 212 feet of the building is actually a spire surrounded by aluminum grating. There's no offices up there. Cron 4 climbed to the top to check it out in 1998. This is a spire. Oh my God. Even though I've probably seen this building a million times, Today's episode showed me that there's a lot I still don't know about this landmark, which, by the way, has just turned 50 years old. Happy birthday, Transamerica Pyramid. This one's for you. I'm Olivia Allen Price. You're listening to Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Randal Dirfettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. The Transamerica Pyramid is iconic now, but you will not be surprised to learn that when it was new, people hated it. KQED reporter Carly Severn takes us back in time to the birth of this legendary landmark. Like a pen in a map, the Transamerica Pyramid marks the spot where the communities of Chinatown, North Beach, Telegraph Hill, and the Financial District all converge. And in terms of the city's history, the site that the pyramid is built on is hallowed ground. 
1849, the year the gold rush began, this part of San Francisco was right on the water. So close that a whaling ship called the Niantic was deliberately run aground right here after the crew abandoned ship to seek their fortunes in this wild, wily town. The coast didn't stay the coast for long. Landfill was used to rapidly swell the San Francisco streets further out into the bay, swallowing that shipwreck with it. But back when this part of Montgomery Street still bordered the bay in 1853, it was a good place to construct a huge building, one that spanned the entire block. They called it the Montgomery Block. And the history of this building has long fascinated San Francisco writer Hyas Wanheiser. It was the tallest building west of the Mississippi at a towering four stories. It was famously built on a foundation of a so-called raft of redwood logs that had been floated across the bay. Like so many places in San Francisco, the Montgomery Block and the people inside it lived many lives. This space was originally built to be law offices, with a hangout spot for higher society. But when the city's business folks started to migrate to Market Street, the creatives moved in. They were writers and sculptors, people who were inventing journalism in the mid-1860s. People like Ambrose Bierce, who, according to some, was America's first newspaper columnist. Corporation an ingenious device for obtaining profit without individual responsibility. And Mark Twain and Bret Hart. The only thing about luck is that it will change. And Ina Coolbreth, who was California's first poet laureate. Were I to write what I know, the book would be too sensational to print. But were I to write what I think proper, it would be too dull to read. Just a block to the north, now iconic artists Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera lived and worked here in the 1930s. It was a scene. It sort of stayed a scene for most of its life, which ended in 1959 when someone bought it and tore it down to make a parking structure. But the garage never materialized. And so the space remained a single parking lot for almost a decade. Enter the Trans-America Corporation. This business actually started in San Francisco back in 1904 as the Bank of Italy, courtesy of a local man called A.P. Giannini. Later, in the 30s, it would become known as Bank of America. Ever heard of it? Giannini had a lot of financial schemes, and he soon needed more than a bank to contain them. That's when the Transamerica Corporation was born. By 1969, the corporation was ready to make its mark on San Francisco with a new headquarters. They brought in a Los Angeles architect named William Pereira to design it. He was told to create something that would still allow light to filter down to street level. But when the design for the 763,000-square-foot pyramid dropped, the critics hated it. The San Francisco Chronicle's architecture writer Alan Temko called it Authentic architectural butchery. 
And it wasn't just local critics. The Washington Post said Pereira's pyramid proposal was... A second-class World's Fair space needle. Anti-social architecture at its worst. Said Los Angeles Times critic John Pastier. He captured a broader unease about Transamerica trying to smear its corporate vision on the San Francisco skyline. Corporations that are far more important to the city have exercised considerably more restraint in their architecture than Transamerica, which is blatantly attempting to put its brand on the city. People protested against Pereira's pyramid design, carrying signs that bore slogans like corporate egotism and stop the shaft. They even wore pyramid-shaped dunce hats. These protesters actually included Haya Swanheiser's own mother. She was a community-minded hippie, and she didn't think that a neighborhood was the right place for a skyscraper. Neighborhood residents even filed a lawsuit. At a city hall hearing about the proposal, an attorney for the Telegraph Hill Dwellers Association spoke for those residents in language that echoed the burgeoning environmentalism of the 60s. The curse of this country is the worship of material things. We've polluted our rivers and our harbors and our lakes, our air. We are now about to pollute the skyline of San Francisco, one of its greatest treasures. But at that same hearing, San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alioto quoted the classics in support of the pyramid. I think we have to recognize that uh, the Latinists used to say it, de gustibus non est disputandum, that there simply is no disputing tastes. And the only question is whether it is so bad that all reasonable men must agree. And this pyramid, Alioto said, wasn't that bad. On the contrary. It will add considerable interest and beauty to the San Francisco skyline. The city's planning commission signed off on the project, and the pyramid was officially coming to San Francisco. Construction on the Transamerica Pyramid started in 1969, a dark year in many ways. This was the year in which three of the four confirmed murders by the Zodiac Killer took place, the last one in San Francisco itself. School children are nice targets. I shall wipe out a school bus some morning, shoot out the tires, and then pick off the kiddies as they come bounding out. The year that you could open the Chronicle and read the Zodiac's cryptic letters full of codes and symbols right there at your breakfast table. On the theory that perhaps the killer who calls himself the Zodiac may be planning his next victim based on astrological signs. 69 was also the year of the gruesome Manson family murders in L.A., with all their satanic imagery. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. The disastrous Altamont Festival outside Livermore. Hey, hey, people! A celebration of counterculture that devolved into violence, mayhem, and murder. Why are we fighting? Why are we fighting? So I can't help thinking how it would have felt to be living in San Francisco at the start of the 70s, bombarded with so much occult-inflected darkness in your morning paper, and seeing one of the most ancient and mysterious symbols, a pyramid, being summoned in your backyard. 
But for many, watching a skyscraper go up was also exciting. Uh, my name's Larry Yee, um, born and raised in San Francisco. Now Larry is the president of the historic Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, also known as the Chinese Six Companies. He also serves on the San Francisco Police Commission. But back in 1969, growing up in Chinatown's Ping Yun housing development, Larry was a basketball-obsessed teen, running, or often skating, around this part of the city with his friends. Play high and seek. You know, we challenge ourselves and go into some of these vacant buildings that uh, they develop. Walking around the base of the pyramid over 50 years later, with the sound of traffic and tourists echoing off the street corners, Larry says the San Francisco he remembers from childhood, pre-pyramid, looked quite different. Yeah, it was flat. <laughs> there, weren't, there weren't many buildings like this that pop up through the skylight. This part of town was hopping and full of the kinds of characters that had frequented the Montgomery block years back. It was home to famous nightclubs like The Hungry Eye and the Purple Onion Comedy Cellar, where folks like Lenny Bruce were playing. Wherever I go, I kill him! But when the pyramid was being built, all Larry and his friends could get was a sneak peek through the holes in the plywood fencing that hid the rapidly rising behemoth. And he still remembers the sheer constant construction noise. You come home from school, they go, boom. And they're pounding down on the pillars. Boom, boom, boom. Initially, he and his friends didn't even know it was a pyramid. They just saw a building being built up and up and then up even further, getting narrower. Uh, We had concerns, too, how far he's going to go, whether uh, could it tip over. And then once they finished, they said, ah, this is a pyramid. When it was finished, Pereira's pyramid had over 3,000 windows, an exterior of white quartz and an illuminated spire at its very top, like the star on top of a Christmas tree. Subtle, the pyramid is not. But decades on, Larry's still a fan of this building. He says for him, it represents progress, the meeting of the old and the new, And he's fond of its place in the visual fabric of the city and the neighborhood he's always called home. I don't know, it's magical. And it's funny. For a building that's literally built on the site of the Montgomery block, where creative genius flourished, a building whose design was so fiercely contentious, the Transamerica Pyramid Center is now thoroughly uncontroversial. Its silhouette on our skyline has become symbolic of San Francisco. Even several of those early critics changed their minds. Henrik Bull, an architect who originally opposed the pyramid publicly and loudly, told the San Francisco Chronicle on the building's 40th anniversary that, like many others, he'd switched course in the intervening years. What's good about the pyramid overwhelms what's bad about it. It's a wonderful building, and what makes it wonderful is everything that we were objecting to. What started out as a corporate symbol has stayed, well, corporate. In a financial district full of office buildings, the pyramid is, in many ways, just another one of them. The Transamerica Pyramid isn't even the Transamerica headquarters anymore. Those officially moved to Maryland. These offices are primarily leased by financial services companies dealing in wealth management and private equity. 
There's even a high-end members club moving in soon. A 21st century Montgomery block artist's haven, this is not. But here's another thing. For the most visible local icon you could imagine, the Transamerica Pyramid is not very public. Tourists might naturally assume that a trip up the pyramid is one of the city's must-see attractions, like climbing the Empire State Building or the Space Needle. But you can't go inside the pyramid center, let alone climb to the top to see the view unless you're visiting one of the offices inside. There used to be an observation deck up there, but it closed in the 90s. Still, the ghosts of this site's previous inhabitants linger here, if you know where to look. If you go to the pyramid today and walk into the small park at its base, you'll find Mark Twain Place, named after one of the Montgomery Block's most iconic inhabitants. And remember that old ship that ran aground here in the gold rush, back when all this was Bayside, the Niantic? It wasn't lost to time after all. Later in the 70s, way after the pyramid was built, a construction team working in the park discovered what was left of that ship right here. Pushed down over the decades by a city that has been remaking itself ever since Europeans arrived, buried deep underground. It's said that champagne bottles were even found resting in its hull. And just steps away from these markers of our past is the once-hated pyramid, a symbol of the city's money and power, but an accepted icon nonetheless. That was KQED's Carly Severn. We've got some gorgeous photos of the Transamerica Pyramid and a neat time lapse of it being built online at BayCurious.org. Be sure to go check it out. I'll also share some neat photos from my Instagram account. I'm at Price. Bay Curious is produced in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our show is made by Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our social video intern is Darren Tu. Special thanks to Anna Vignet for her work on the social video for this episode. We'll be back next week with something a little bit different, an Ask Me Anything episode, where we reveal some behind-the-scenes workings of Bay Curious. We have never done anything quite like this before, and I hope you'll tune in. Have a great week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! 
Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.